Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Yo, welcome, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. I'm your host, founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com, Brad Wilson, and today's guest is the only human being to ever win four WPT titles, the one and only Darren Elias. Darren has over $7.5 million in career life caches to go along with a pretty, pretty, Pretty good 3.8 million in lifetime online career winnings. All of this despite being a self professed low volume player. His career highlights include the aforementioned four WPT titles, including the WPT Bobby Baldwin Classic, 2017 WPT Falls View, Season 16 WPT Tournament of Champions and Darren's personal favorite win, the 2014 WPT Borgata Open. In 2012, he also won a World Championship of Online Poker High Roller event for a cool $547,000, as well as an F-Tops gold medal victory for another 126 k Our conversation today covers a ton of ground from how Darren got his start playing cards in a way that's very near and dear to my own heart, battling in the Yahoo Spades arena to his first tournament bank and subsequent bankroll explosion to over 500k. There are too many greatness bombs to count headed your way, including how human beings are driven by personal interests and incentives that skew their opinions, Darren's thoughts on the re-entry versus freeze-out debate, why AI is an existential imminent threat to the present and future of online poker, why Darren spends most of his time studying human behavior and analyzing patterns to improve his poker game, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you the great Darren Elias. Darren, my man, how are we doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you. Happy to be here. I, w- I want to start out by asking you the story. How did you get involved playing cards in the first place? Um, I started playing cards really young with uh, my family, like my grandmother especially. We wouldn't play poker necessarily, but we would play bridge, spades, um, and hearts. I played a lot of like hearts growing up. It's like a... I don't know if you ever play. It's like a four-person game. Um, yeah, I spent my high school career playing spades every yeah. every single day and hearts as well. So, yeah, yeah. I'm very, so very familiar. familiar with these games. Yeah. yeah. They're fun games. Um, so when I was like 9, 10, I would play those. And then I started playing like um, hearts on the internet, like Yahoo hearts, like pretty competitively where I was like ranked highly in the world when I was like 12 or 13. So then I kept playing that. And then we were in high school moneymaker – won the main event and we were watching that on ESPN. So we naturally we started playing Texas Hold'em like in high school, like little home games. And I always did well. We didn't play for much money, but I always did well, would win the five dollar sit and go or whatever. 
at some point deposited money on party poker in uh, UB and played a little bit online. So I started playing some um, small cash games online, did well. And then when I got to college, I started playing online tournaments, Poker Stars, Paradise Poker back then, all, all, all the sites basically I was playing a lot online. And that's when things kind of like snowballed and I started making real money and then I had a real bank role and could play higher stakes. And that's when it got more serious. So I, I, I haven't had this come up yet because not many uh, Yahoo spaders and Yahoo hearts players that I've run into on the show. But do you, do you think that playing those games helped you transition to poker? Definitely. I mean, I was comfortable with, with cards, like playing cards. Like even in the live, live arena, I always liked playing cards. And um, definitely with hearts, hearts, it was big. Like I used to count cards, like you're counting how many parts a guy has left counting spades it, there is some math involved spades as well I, I got a little frustrated with spades because the collusion like when you're playing online like people are obviously cheating um so i got really frustrated with with uh spades but um i think yeah playing playing cards growing up definitely helped me and prepared me although poker is is a different beast in that there's bluffing and uh more probability kind of things um but yeah I, i'd say playing cards with my grandma growing up definitely prepped me yeah, I think me too. Uh, definitely helped help me feel comfortable just in the arena. To be willing to sit there for hours and hours and play cards. Like, I've been doing that for a long time, and that was... Some people just don't have the patience, you know? Oh, for sure, me too. I can actually attribute my entire poker career to spades because... Uh, Yahoo spades, of all things. Because I met a friend who was around my age. Um, he was my, my main spades partner. And yeah. we played every day. He was a few years older than me, and his mom was a poker dealer. And he get up, he got involved with poker, and started traveling and doing fairly well, and <laughs> talking to me about it. And then that's kind of what sucked me in. And yeah, I, I, I know I'll it. try this thing, make some real money. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he's like, look, I'm, you know, you're, you're really awesome at spades. I know you could do this poker thing. Like I know it. So I saved up. I saved up like three k. Moved to Florida from Tennessee to just give the poker thing a go, which is like looking back, it's like an insane. Yeah. Thing, that's a big leap. An insane thing to do that had like probability of success. Very, very, very low, but somehow it just worked out. Depends how long ago it was too, I guess. I mean, live poker in Florida is pretty soft, especially if you go back in time. It was 2004. So. <laughs> Might not even been legal back then or the cash games. At least. I remember they had the hundred dollar rule or whatever. You could only buy in for a hundred yeah. bucks. Yeah, it was the boats to nowhere. You go to like Cape Canaveral, get on a casino cruise, and it takes you in international waters. You battle for four hours, and they bring you back. That was my that was my first poker experience. I've been on a couple of those when I was younger. Yeah. So when you say like things started going well, like what was your bankroll like when you know you you became fully involved? Like high school, I would say I had like hundreds of dollars like when I was playing in <laughs> high school and, and I would, I would play online. I probably had like 500 to a thousand dollars, I guess. And then, um, when I started playing online, I, I hit like the 10 rebuy on stars for like 15,000. And once I had that, the bankroll went from hundreds of dollars to hundreds of thousands pretty quickly. And I was like, well rolled to like overrolled for the games I was playing. Cause back then online games were, were pretty soft and you could play, big um i had my own action and i was probably running well too so i spun it from a couple hundred to probably half a million or something uh my freshman sophomore years of college 
and uh, was in a good position from there. Let's talk about adversity. So like hundreds to half a million dollars, that's pretty fucking good, right? Let's talk about the bumps in the road. Like were there any bumps? Um, what was a bad time? Um, yeah, I struggled playing online in um, like the cash games online. I wasn't very good on UB back in the day. I played 25 cent no limit for a long time when I was like 16, 17 and um, tried to move up to 50 cent no limit and got smashed and had to move back to 25 cent no limit and then i kind of like gave up on that um so i had trouble beating 50 cent no limit that would be a big adversity when i was uh, <laughs> when i was younger but eventually i stopped playing online cash games and just focused on tournaments because i like the excitement of tournaments more like being deep in the tournament that feeling um and i was with cash games it was always like the victory felt like incomplete like you have a great winning session okay good you quit like it always feels like there's more to be won or there's more there where if you win a tournament, you enter and you beat everybody and you win first place. That's like a complete victory to me. It was more satisfying, I guess, playing tournaments and and winning. Yeah. It's circular. You, you get that feeling, the gratification of taking one down. Um, when you, when you were spinning it up to half a mil playing, I, I assume the action was good back then, right? Like on full tilt and UB, there were 200, 500, 1K tournaments every yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. They had uh, more sites too. I mean, we had Paradise Poker. Like these sites don't exist anymore. Like you play a $30 rebuy during the week and you could win 20, 25,000. And um, back then the games were a lot different than they are now. Like nobody knew what they were doing. If you weren't open limping a lot, you were a pretty good player. <laughs> yeah, way ahead of the curve. Yeah, but re-stealing didn't even exist back then, you know. It was, it was right. Crazy. And I know Party Poker, too, had just before UIGEA, they were pumping out the tournaments every single oh, yeah. night. Like 150, 200K guaranteed every day of the week. And then Sunday, I think it was like a mil guaranteed or half a million. It was just an absurd amount of volume you could get in. Uh, yeah, and, and back then, the um, the sites were more favorable for players it's not like now where they're like gouging and it's all these bounty tournaments and progressive things back then um almost all the tournaments were either rebuys or normal freeze outs which i think is good for the best players and the the top of the crop player wise is going to take a lot of the money out of the of the prize pools which nowadays they kind of try to prevent with how they run their tournaments and uh, kind of introducing more luck and more spreading distribution of the prize pool with all these different formats where um, back then it was kind of just like clean freeze outs and rebuys, which I like. Which is interesting because I mean, now in the poker world, I know there's all this uproar over like the re-entries. Are the re-entries good? Are the re-entries bad? Should they go away? Should they stay? What are your thoughts on that? Um, mixed thoughts, I guess. I, I am for re-entry in general. I think Poker is a skill game, and um, re-entries give the best players the highest chance of winning. So that's a good thing in, in that regard. And a lot of the people complaining the loudest about re-entry are kind of the middle-tier players who it hurts them because the best players can keep re-enter, and maybe they aren't rolled enough for it, um, or they don't like it. But I will say I don't like when re-entries open too long. I don't think you should be able to keep re- firing in re-entries at 20 big blinds, 15 big blinds. I don't like that. I would say as long as it gets cut off at a reasonable length, like I think like 50, 60 big blinds is probably where they should cut off, cut it off when you're entering with that many chips. 
um, that it's still good because if a guy wants to try to gamble and just go all in a lot at 50 big blinds, that he's he's playing badly. You know, like he's making some crazy plays. Right. Where at 20 right. big blinds, you can kind of find enough spots where you're not losing that much equity, and uh, a well rolled player is going to get a stack, kind of not cheaply, but um, it, it's it, it's going to happen a lot more often at 20 big blinds. Right. So there's more incentive to keep re entering at about 20 bigs. That that makes yeah, a lot you're of not playing as bad to go all in. Kind of that, that's important. Yeah. The the mistakes you could just jam it, jam 20 big blinds in and find a bunch of positive spots but at 50 you kind of have to be more selective that that makes a ton of sense and um the meritocracy in poker right the best players having the chance to win the money is shockingly a controversial concept nowadays i think yeah it kind of dumbfounds me that I, i see on twitter like all these posts on twitter all the time about how do we make poker better for the recreational players and the hobby players. And like, I get that, right? Like you need these players in the game. It's good for poker. It's good overall, but let's not forget that folks like yourself and and for cash games, me, who's been playing 15 years, like professionals invest tons of time and energy into learning and growing and, and becoming one of the best players at what they do. And it just seems kind of silly to take that away. Like this is why people love poker in the first place, right? Because it is a skill game. So what yeah. are we, we're trying to remove the skill. Like that's, that's yeah, just kind of absurd to me. It's pretty false. What, what a lot of the people do is, is they, um, they protect their own interests. Like, like they're, they're arguing for whatever is good for themselves personally, and then disguise it as, um, Oh, it's good for the rec players or the rec players want this. Um, which isn't always true. Um, I think if, Let's hypothetically, instead of um, Bellagio, which is 10K reentry, blah, 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 let's say it's a $1 unlimited reentry tournament playing against very weak players. All the mediocre players would want unlimited reentry. They would want to have the biggest edge they could. But because they're playing against players who are better than them at a higher price point, they don't want that. So that's kind of the crux of like where, where these guys are complaining. If the buy-in was small and the fields were soft, they would want unlimited reentry. I, I don't think that they, they may not admit it, but um, they would want that added edge. But because there's better players in the field, they don't really like that. And I know a lot of recs who who love reentry. Um, it makes a lot of sense travel wise, like especially at the price points like the World Poker Tour. Um, for me, or even a rec to go to Oklahoma and play a thirty five hundred dollar freeze out is kind of risky because. You fly and you, you drive from Dallas and then you, you could be out in two hands and then you're gone. Like it doesn't make much sense to play that tournament where if you have unlimited reentry for two days, then it's kind of a different, you can plan to be there three or four days. You know, you're going to be there day two. I, I think it allows people to travel to more tournaments too. I agree. And just that walk from uh, the Windstar, <laughs> from the hotel to the poker room, is like a two-mile walk. Um, yeah. Just that in and of itself, walking to the poker room, busting out. The bells and slot machines. I that walk. <laughs> yeah, with uh, dodging everybody on their motorized carts, z- zooming in front rough, of you. <laughs> it is a rough walk. But yeah, for sure, like travel expenses add up. And it's you know there's a time investment as well. So you want to maximize your time. For the folks that are traveling, and, the, and the, there is a place for freezeouts, and 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 I think it, the poker community realizes that there are a couple premier freezeout events like LAPC's freezeout, um, 
the World Series main events freeze out. I mean, there should be a couple of these. I think that's fine. I wouldn't even mind trending towards like single reentry or like single reentry per day. Um, that eliminates the like really high buy-in counts by the top players, which um, I don't mind cutting that out. But I think reentry in general gets attacked unfairly by the mediocre professionals. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Like it's it's human nature to protect our own self-interest, right? I think that's just basic human psychology. All right, so let's transition a little. What, what's something about you that not a lot of people know? I'm probably more um, like nerdier than people would, would expect. I guess people see me, they wouldn't expect it. But I, um, I wanted to work for NASA like when I was in college. I was a physics major, really into science, um, like sci-fi, like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and any kind of shit like that I, I like. Most people probably wouldn't expect that, I guess, when they meet me. And I'm if I have free time and I'm like studying something, it's probably like science or astronomy, um, AI. I'm pretty interested in nowadays. So that I'm interested in uh, these kinds of topics, I guess. Yeah, I I don't know if that's surprising. I think you know you're a smart guy, so you want to learn. Wh- what are you thinking about, like AI, NASA? What are some burning questions that uh, is going on with you? I'm curious. I'm really curious about like space exploration, like um, when we're going to get to Mars, if we're going to colonize Mars, um, how we're going to expand from there, what the next step is. Are we going to set up like uh, extra? Are we ever going to get outside the solar system? Are we going to send things um, to other stars, other galaxies, like big picture kind of things um, really interest me. And then AI with um, what's going to happen when we reach um, super intelligence or, or general AI. Um, when that happens, maybe those two things are linked. Maybe we can use AI for, for space exploration, that kind of stuff. I think they're most likely linked. Um, one of my favorite blogs is uh, waitbutwhy.com. He goes into a lot about <laughs> yeah. Elon, Elon Musk and the space exploration. And I mean, Elon wants to sp- send a million folks to Mars by like 2050, he said, yeah. I think very recently. Um, I'm a pro, like I'm hundred percent a pro AI person. Like I see yeah. like disinformation, the potential atomic warfare, just all the things, climate change that are going on in the world. And from my perspective, I see like, Oh, humanity's kind of drawing dead here. Like we yeah. need to do something. Um, and I think yeah, we, AI is an out. We can either like use it and accept it, or it's kind of, it's going to be an awkward relationship otherwise. And I mean, AI nowadays is getting, super strong and narrow in small fields. It can do almost anything better than a human. Just this year, I was paid to play a poker AI, which proved to be superhuman, like um, basically played against a bot that was very, very good. And it had learned only by playing itself. It wasn't shown anything. It was just a neural network where it, it learned from its own mistakes and played against itself billions of times and, and got to be better or as good as the best players in the world. How'd you do versus the bot? It's interesting because... I played when it first started playing kind of, and it was really bad in the beginning. So um, it was still learning and I was smashing it. And then it got better pretty quickly over like a week. Um, <laughs> it went from being really bad to break even kind of against me in six max cash. It's interesting though. They use, they use a system that um, you play like 5,000 hands and then they use some mathematical formula. They extrapolate it as if you played 50,000 hands and they take out luck. So like, I think I won like, 20 big blinds per hundred or something. But after the thing, it 
it appears I got lucky and I actually, <laughs> I, I don't really understand that stuff's over my head, but um, it was, it was strong. It was a very strong opponent. And there's something like very cold and scary about playing against an AI and losing, but <laughs> it's not human. And it's, it, it's a little strange. It's a strange feeling. Yeah, I can imagine. It's, uh, it's pretty funny though. You, you play your 5k hands, you you celebrate your, 20 bigs per hundred and they're like no no, no you yeah. just ra- you just ran good we extrapolated yeah. it and you you broke actually even, you actually. <laughs> actually you got crushed yeah. <laughs> that's that's funny do you have any fears uh about online poker in ai because i oh absolutely i think online poker's um on its last legs kind of because of ai i think um we're not really far away from a bot that can deal with um real-time adjustments kind of that, that's the like Bots excel in um, set parameters. Like if you bots, you, no one plays heads up Syngos anymore. Heads up Turbo Syngos because it's the sa- if it's the same thing every time, a bot can figure it out pretty quickly and be superhuman at it. What bots struggle with is something like a tournament where you put it eight handed with all these different stack sizes. It can't really adjust for that on the fly, and you can't you can't spend a bunch of time running one sim on a table that has fifteen big blinds, twenty five big blinds, forty big blinds. Like it's Every situation is different in a tournament, which is kind of why tournaments are the last place left, kind of, where um, there's not that many superhuman bots. I don't know if there is a superhuman bot that could play tournaments. But if you look at high-stakes cash games online nowadays, they're probably riddled with bots. And, I mean, these sites are spending millions of dollars to try to prevent them, um, but they're still there. And if it's not a bot, it can be somebody playing and using real-time assistance. They could have a bot next to them on a computer and they can check it as they're playing. With stuff like that out there, I think online poker's um, doomed, to be honest. Yeah, I I mean, it's it's obviously existential. The uh, There is a similar thing, I think, in backgammon where, shockingly, people used to gamble big online at backgammon, but then they, you know, a bot comes out that just plays perfectly and crushes everybody and boom, that online backgammon's done forever. Yeah, I mean, um, chess, chess, similar thing. Like, it, it, there's no one playing online chess for money because it, it, it's a lot about, like, how readily available the, the bot is to get for a person playing. Like, right now, I think for poker, it's probably, it's not quite there yet that you could get a real-time bot to help you to play online. But within a couple years, I would guess that that software is out there and people can use it. Isn't it interesting that human nature... Uh, circling back to the AI thing and he, just humans effectively being doomed over the, over the long term at our current traje- trajectory. Like, once the bots infiltrate the games, it's game over. Like, yeah. what are the, is it going to be bot versus bot? Like, they're not even going to get action. They're creating a thing that kills what they're trying to take advantage of, which is ironic to me. Just people using the bots to squeeze all the money out of the game. Um, the, the thing's... I mean, to be optimistic or like romantic about it, I guess we do get to see how the game should be played, which I think there there is something beautiful in that, that we, as the bots learn and they get better, we get to see the final version of the game. Like if you, I don't know if you watch like AlphaGo documentary about that bot that played Go. Pretty interesting. Um, the best player in the world played this game against the bot and um, he's just shocked and like, humbled by the how good the bot plays and the creativity and things like that. And we see that in poker too, where now at the, at the highest level um, in these 100Ks, 250Ks, guys are basically mimicking how bots play. 
and the, the bots have found the right sizings. The bots use these mixed strategies, and people are r- rolling dice during hands to to randomize their decisions so they can mimic a bot. Like we didn't, nobody knew about that five years ago. Um, so it is interesting to be educated by these bots, but they they will take over online. <laughs> yeah, that education comes with a dire dire cost. Yeah, um, probably about this. It, it'll probably all coincide with online poker being legalized in the states. Just <laughs> the just, final. Just as we get it, it's over. Yeah, the final kick in the ass. It it is nice, I guess, if it's legal in the states and someone's botting. Like now that it's regulated, and it's in the U.S., I think you could like arrest a guy and take him to jail. It, it, like that that's never really a threat when you're playing on like party poker or something, but. If a guy's in Indiana and he's using a bot to cheat people online, you could go put him in jail, I think, which is a more of a deterrent than, than just taking your money. Yeah. And the downside is, are these people like VPNing from like some other country? And then you have like, how do you extradite them? And there, there, there's just a ton, a ton of issues. It's very unfortunate. And your thoughts mirror my own that, yeah, on, online poker eventually becomes doomed. I don't know what sort of time frame. Would I would say five that? years. I, I'd say probably four to five years. Um, it would be done. I, I, I'd, I'd be surprised if it lasts longer than that. This is a very uplifting uh, podcast interview, guys. <laughs> I mean, I don't play much online anymore, so I'm, it doesn't really affect me too much. But sorry to if you're a big online grinder. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there will there will always be idiots on there playing who don't know or don't care. So there will always be money there. Um, just the entire ecosystem will probably become people cheating beating those people do you think you could change the structures of the of the games to mess with the bots or do you think they would just learn so fast that it wouldn't matter i think eventually the bots will just become stronger at adjusting to the dynamics but any any format where the parameters are set from the beginning are are very easy for a bot to learn it doesn't matter what the parameters are they can still learn it I, i probably played a lot online the last thing I played was probably like 2014 or 13 or something. And even back then you couldn't play hyper turbo sit and goes because it was the bots. It's very easy for them to solve one-on-one formats. Um, so even back then you couldn't play heads up. I can only imagine what it looks like now. Like do they even have heads up sit and goes online anymore? Do they run? Like I have no, I would guess no. And if yes, at high stakes, you're playing a bot. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if they run either. I mean, I, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, so it's like there's no online. There's actually very minimal live poker for me. It's like a poker dead zone. So, <laughs> plus we haven't had anything like real and regulated for such a long time. Right side live poker will always be there, and I don't think bots will kill live poker. Oh, for sure. Like live poker, just I think live poker in general, although you get less volume the skill level is so much less even at whatever. I mean, 2K, 3K, some 5K tournaments. Like the skill level in a 5K tournament sometimes is way less than a 6 max, you know, 500 NL online game. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, even with all the tools out there, the coaching, the software, the, 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 the run at once videos, whatever you want, the the process of like consuming that knowledge, like internalizing it, getting in a live game and executing it properly is is harder than people think. 
Um, I, I've kind of realized that as I've done some coaching that like, it's very easy for me to tell somebody where they went wrong, where they made a mistake and what they should do differently. That's easy. The hard part is getting somebody to do that in the game repeatedly, like the, the actual execution of uh, these, these theories or, or poker stuff that you learn online and then getting in a live game and doing it, it is harder than people think and people mess up. So there's always going to be um, human error, which makes the games good. And lack of data, you know, just collecting hand histories, reviewing a database and life, like it's arduous, it's annoying, almost nobody does it. So when you have a lack of data, you know, like somebody goes to you for coaching, it can be hard to even pinpoint where folks are going wrong or what their biggest leaks are, specifically because you can't just do a database analysis and pull up some hands and show them exactly what's happening. Yeah, unless they're playing online. It's like one live, one live hand history doesn't tell you that much. And you have to kind of, when I do the coaching, I, I don't enjoy it too much, but I try to find like common themes of a guy's making the same mistake in the same spot. Like that, that's kind of the big stuff you want to focus on. Um, but then as soon as you kind of get that worked out, something else will pop up. And then <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's tough. It's like a leaking boat. Right. Uh, long live live poker. What is up my loyal chasing poker greatness listener? Coach Brad here, and I just wanted to take a moment to ask you a simple question. How many times have you heard my guests and I speak passionately about the benefits of poker coaching? You get to expand your poker network, receive expert feedback you can rely on, and have your burning questions answered by a trusted mentor. Which brings me to the Poker Power Hour, a series of 100% free Live one-hour poker webinars, masterclasses, and hand history breakdowns that kick off each and every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Poker Power Hour will be led by me, Coach Brad, as well as some of your favorite Chasing Poker Greatness guests. It will be your weekly guide for helping you plug your leaks, skyrocket your poker growth, expand your network of crushers, and inevitably win more money on the green felt. The Poker Power Hour is premium content and live only. There will be no free replays or view on demand, and the content will eventually be released as paid training only. So head to EnhanceYourEdge.com, opt in to the Poker Power Hour, and get for free today what you'll have to pay for it later. Once again, to catch the Poker Power Hour every single week, Head to EnhanceYourEdge.com and join the email newsletter. Now, back to the show. What would you say, you got four WPT titles. What's your most memorable one? Uh, definitely the first one, I would say. I had final tabled that tournament before at Borgata. Um, I got fifth, I think, a couple years before. And um, that was my first major live win. Still my biggest score I haven't hit. I think it was like 840. I never won more than that. I had my whole family there because it was in, uh, it was like an hour from where I was living at the time. I was living in Philly, I think, or uh, Jersey. And uh, everyone was there. Outright, outright win, biggest score, first title. Um, that that'll, I'll always remember that. Yeah, I can imagine. What was going through your mind like when you, when you took it down? I was pretty calm in the moment. It was like a weird dynamic. One guy had all the chips at the final table. Um, I coolered him. And then, so we both have like a hundred big blinds and the other guys have 20 and, uh, kind of, you know, you're going to be heads up against the guy, probably get heads up, 
big pay jump back then. I think the, the second was 500. First was like 850. And uh, <laughs> we, we just played it. Um, so like an in, intense heads up match against a pretty good player where I ran well. And I mean, it's, it's a live heads up match. It's like 50 hands. So um, funny how that works. And uh, yeah, I think I, I cooled on the last hand and kind of knew what was coming. And uh, my hand held. It was, it was it was awesome. I mean, I wasn't like going nuts or anything, but it was like a calming, like, I never feel like, I don't want to say excited. I feel more relief when I win a poker tournament because I like relieve that I won. Like I'm, uh, I'm going in exp- expecting to win. I, it's not always going to happen. Um, I can play poorly or get unlucky. Um, but I feel relief anytime I win a poker tournament, not like excitement. Does that translate to other areas of your life as well? Like sports or competitions, that feeling of relief when you win? I think so. I think the better you are at something, the more that relief feeling comes. If I if I do something I'm not good at and I win, I get like more excited about it. <laughs> like if I'm playing this, like basketball and I'm like winning, I'm like celebrating. I'm happy because I, I suck at basketball. But if you spend a lot of time and try to get good at something, then you kind of have higher expectations, and I think that's linked to that feeling of relief, especially in these WPTs where I, I'm getting to these final tables with a lot of like random players. I'm going to be pretty upset if I don't do my best. And uh, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't be like patting myself on the back for winning. I should, I should be relieved that I won because that's what I expected to happen. When you fall short, what does that feel like? Do you feel, you know, how do you feel when you don't take the tournament down and you feel like you should? If it's luck running bad, um, I, it really doesn't bother me. If it's myself, I could have played better. I made mistakes. Um, that stuff, it really bothers me and it sticks with me. And um, I mean, I'll be thinking about that stuff for months after the tournament. These uh, missed opportunities are running through the hands in my head. Could have done this, should have done that. That, that happens to me a lot. Huge. And um, honestly, I've done that a lot of times at final tables. Um, I'd probably have won six if I played better. I mean, that, that, that's on me. I mean, I've, I've made mistakes three and four handed in these things. And they bother me for months, but I think that's like a, a quality a lot of good players have is that their mistakes stick with them and they kind of try to internalize what happened and not let it happen again. Um, but yeah, it, it should bother you, I think, if you get in a big spot and you don't play your best. Yeah, the pain of making a mistake is way worse than executing and doing what you're supposed to do and winning. And uh, you're absolutely right. I would, I would say like the top competitors, especially in, in most fields, if they make a mistake, that's going to that's gonna stick with them. Like they're going to yeah. dream about that mistake and how they can do better next time. Yeah. And in poker, there's so many – in every hand, there's so many branches and decision points. And uh, it, it's, it's easy, and I think it's okay to make small mistakes. It's really the big ones. And uh, on nowadays, it's – everything's on live stream. Everything's amplified. Um, and – at the final stage of the tournament, it's uh, you're playing for high stakes. I mean, these are hundreds of thousands of dollars on these decisions. So there is a, a monetary penalty too. Yeah. Your first uh, WPG title, you're playing a heads up, heads up tournament for 350 K. That's that's pretty big. Let's transition a little bit because um, I know you, you've had an experience this year that is not good. And, uh, I'd like to get into that if you if you want to tell that story. Sure. Um I was in um I was in Vegas. I just played the LAPC final table in Vegas. I think it was in March. Got third 
and was staying to play a couple more events. They had like some events at the win and um, my wife's at home. I'm in, uh, I'm sleeping Vegas middle of night. Uh, my phone goes off the, the alarm and the house is going off. So it's like, I know it's like 3am back home. I'm calling my wife. What's going on? Like, I don't know. I think somebody tried to break in. So um, what happened was this guy, he tried to he tried all the doors. He tried to like cut in through the window and break in eventually. Um, broke into my car, got my garage door opener, opened the garage, tried to come in through the garage. The alarm went off and he ran away. So this happened, um, I, I want to say it's like March 15th or something. Obviously, I'm freaked out. My wife is freaked out. I canceled the rest of my tournaments fly home. Then over the next couple of days, we're kind of trying to piece together what happened. The garage door opener is missing my car so this guy still has it and he's still on the loose we don't know if he's going to come back so spend a lot of effort money putting in cameras everything making security tighter and then march 21st i guess yeah it was the day after my daughter's second birthday my wife and i are both out during the day he comes back my babysitter's home with my daughter he comes to the front door with the gun two o'clock broad daylight afternoon comes to the front door with the gun um Tells the babysitter where's Darren keep his money, um, and she doesn't. She didn't know what I did, or she she had no clue. Um, so this nineteen year old girl knows nothing. Um, he looks around the house for money quickly, doesn't find anything. Ends up putting my daughter in a bedroom by herself, locks the babysitter in a bathroom, um, and then runs away. And uh, what? It's two o'clock in the afternoon. I live in a pretty normal neighborhood. There's a lot of witnesses and stuff. People have cameras. People walking their dogs. Like he's spotted, going to be caught. Um, was he wearing a mask or anything? A mask. Wow. Um, yeah. Just, and when you hear more about his story, he was like desperate, um, in a bad place with drugs. He owed money, um, gambling, I think. But um, he had actually played poker at Borgata a lot, one two, in. Saw I had done well there, Googled my address, and uh, for some reason was hell-bent on robbing me. It made multiple trips to the house. Wow. That's very yeah. scary. He gets um, caught a couple of days later. And um, just now, last month, the final sentencing came, and he got uh, 13 years. I think. 13 years. That's 13 years. It's a long time. I, I guess, did, did you hear his side? I guess at the testimony, did you go to the trial? Yeah, yeah, I went to a lot of the court stuff, and it's kind of what I expected to hear. Like, he knew who I was through poker. He was desperate. He was trying to, he owed money. He was trying to, he thought I'd have money sitting around the house, tried to steal it to help himself. Yeah. Uh, was very regretful, remorseful. Um, like, I, I don't like pity him because he did an awful thing to my family and were scarred and whatnot. But um, he's 24 years old and was in a bad place and made a bad, really bad decision. And now he's getting fully punished for it. Where, um, He's not going to get out of jail until he's like 35. For anybody listening here that maybe does keep large sums of money in their house, like what would you tell them um, after this experience? Do you think there was anything that could have been done differently? No, I mean, I I guess the one thing I could have that I did do afterwards, and um, people should be vigilant about, is is if you're a well known player, to try to keep your personal information off the internet, which is pretty hard. I didn't realize that if you just type in Darren Elias address, my address would pop up. Um, so I've taken steps to try to erase that from the internet afterwards, but it, it's pretty hard to do. And there's a lot of these sites that kind of 
put your address out there without your permission. And there's always going to be state tax records if you own your house with, with your with your name on the property. So kind of trying to um, get rid of that stuff, I would say, would be a step. And having security, alarm, locking your doors. I don't think most people, poker players, even leave big sums of money sitting around. And ones that do, it's in a safe or it's in a safe deposit box somewhere. Like, it's not going to be easily stealable. So I don't think that kind of stuff I would do differently. I would just be, if you're anyone of a name, I would I would check to make sure there's not too much stuff out there about where you live and family and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty brutal. It's it's obvious that you know <laughs> a successful poker player is not just going to have like you know coffee table with all of their tournament winnings in it. You open it and take all the money out, right? Yeah. Um. And and if you are robbing somebody that you know has a lot of money and they do have it in the house in a safe. This is a, this is a dangerous proposition I think um, for the robber because most likely they've, there's other measures in place. And I, I, yeah, if you have a safe, maybe you have weapons, um, you you know, it's, it's, it it could have gone a lot worse, honestly. Like I I got pretty lucky. Um, I'm a poker player. I run through possibilities, like simulations of, of how this happens and there's a lot of different ways it goes down. Like, I don't know if he tried to come when I wasn't home. If I'm home, it's a lot different of a situation. If I'm home alone, it's different. If I'm home in my daughter's home, like the, who does he get to first? What room am I in? Does he um, take like, you hostage? I mean, take my daughter hostage. Um, yeah. Like, there's a lot of different ways it could have gone. Um, the police get here while he's still in the house with my daughter and the big, like, there's a lot of things that could have happened differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got lucky in that regard, but it's still, it's still really tough for my family because I travel a lot, you know, and, uh, after this happens, my wife surely doesn't want to be home alone. So, I mean, that, that's, uh, it's going to stick with us for a while. Of, of course she doesn't. And yeah. like in our pre-interview, I, I told you a similar thing happened to me. And what ended up happening was my friend's little sister got robbed or got stood up at gunpoint, like, and made to go through the house where, you know, the, the person thought I was there, but I was not there. So it was my friend's little sister that got held at gunpoint. And like, you know, she had PTSD for a, a, a long time. She didn't want to be in a house. She would cry if she was by herself. And, and she was like 18. I think she was 18 yep. or 19 years old when that went down. And it's, it's just a brutal, brutal, brutal thing. Um, yeah. Similar to this babysitter. I mean, she's 19 years old and she's got to carry this rest of her life now. And, uh, she did nothing to deserve that. That's just this guy's he's it's like uh just flack from this guy's bad decision where he he was just thinking about himself getting the money and not the, the lives he's affecting and the danger and all that. Yeah. It goes back to, you know, humans typically acting in their own self interest without analyzing, you know, that's the only variable that they look at. Yeah. Um so when you think of joy, let's just <laughs> change gears again to Joy. Uh, joy. Happiness, <laughs> happiness. Um, in your poker career. What's, um, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, winning tournaments. I mean, I, I get I get joy from just being in the zone and playing well for multiple days. Like that, that makes me happy. Um, executing well. If I can play a day of poker and bag, and and I made one mistake or zero mistakes in my head, I feel pretty good about that. Um, there's always going to be stuff I could do better. So um, I'm not saying I play perfect poker or anywhere near it, but um, if I do the best of my ability in a day, that gives me joy, making the right decision. 
obviously winning a tournament is, is great. Um, but more the execution and playing well kind of gives me, gives me joy. Yeah. The process yeah. process versus results. Um, yeah, and there's something, um, when you're in one of those States where you, I'm sure you've had it, you're playing live and, um, things are going well, you're winning, you're making, doing the right thing. Um, that, that's a good state of like flow or whatever to be in. I, I enjoy that. Yeah. The, the world slows down and, you're just a state of calm where you're picking up all the bits of information and you're processing them well, and you're taking action on what you yeah. know. Like that's a, I think that that's, that, yeah, that's the ideal state. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? Probably all the travel, I guess. I, I, I wasn't, I was never like a big traveler when I was younger. Um, but when I started playing online in college, I would play these satellites, these poker star satellites. And, um, it would be 500 or 1,000 and to go play an EPT or Aussie Millions or some event in Europe. And um, I was 18, 19 years old, and I would just go. I would play, and I would go, and I would skip class for two weeks. And I, I would play. I played most of the EPTs. And then I get to this point now where I'm like, I'm 30, 32 years old, 33 years old. And um, I never think of myself as like a traveler, but, yeah, I, I've – played poker on six continents, been to like 30 countries like I, that. I didn't expect that, that I would become like a worldly traveler. Um, I, that's never been a goal or anything like that, but it is a side effect, I guess, from playing these poker tournaments that you get to travel the world. You get to go to these places you wouldn't go. I would never go visit Monte Carlo, Monaco and, and, and just for the hell of it, I don't think, but, um, been there four or five times for poker. And it's, it's something that, uh, wouldn't wouldn't have been in my life if not for poker any favorite stop that comes to mind right off the top of your head i like i like australia a lot i almost went this year uh aussie millions for sure i went when i was 19 actually haven't been back um i like that one um prague i like a lot prague in uh december it's cold but it, it was nice and um montreal is probably one of my favorite cities as well i like montreal a lot really montreal Yes, you can go in the summer; it's better. But uh, beautiful city, beautiful people. Um, it's, it's good. It could be cold in the winter. I've heard. <laughs> Absolutely, very, very, um, play, very cold. The casino there too. Playground poker does a great job. Um, if you ever get to play poker up there, I'd recommend it. Nice. What does your process for regularly improving your game look like? A lot of like self review with um, hands I played, where I, I, I kind of um, work through it in my head and. Uh, go down different avenues, decision-making, would this be better? Um, Cause I think with, I, I would say in a lot of these softer events, I use an exploitative strategy. So kind of like getting in these hands and trying to figure out how people would react to certain th- things I do and would be, would doing something differently, get a different reaction. What would this person do? Um, a lot of those types of thought processes where um, less of the, playing with PO solver and finding the right sizing and frequency, less of that stuff and more um, specific hand review where I I try to make an effort really, even when I play against weak players to kind of understand how they think. And um, a lot of top players, I think don't do that. They kind of have their set strategy and um, they know they're going to beat this guy because they're better than them, but they don't actually put themselves in this weak player's shoes and try to, imagine what he's doing at the table. So I'm really trying to think like, what is this guy trying to accomplish? How did, how is he playing? And then eventually you can kind of figure out their strategy. And um, my goal is always to be, I'm able to tell you what he will do 
in a in a spot with a certain hand. Like that's kind of my goal when I play against a lot of these weak players to be able to predict what they'll do. And then once you know that, you can build an exploitative strategy around it. When you have a hypothesis, you know, where you have a question like that, if I were to do X, how would this player respond? If I were to whatever it is, overbet the turn, how, how, what's their reaction? How do you test that theory and then sort of internalize the results? Um, it's tough because you end up like putting players into like baskets or categories kind of because there's even among weaker players, there, there's passive players, there's aggressive players. And then among that too, people don't play the same all day. They, they vary and part of it is emotional, especially weaker players. Um, things are going well, they're playing one way, they lose a hand, things go another way. Um, so it's tough and there's not the data out there is just every hand you've seen. There's no more data than that. So I would say paying attention to every hand is paramount when you're like building one of these hypotheses. Like any showdown, any sizing. I get incredibly tilted if if I'm like turned around or something and I, a hand is going and I miss the flop sizing or something. Like that that kind of pisses me off because like any any kind of sizing thing, information there and that's data. And if it goes to showdown and I didn't see it, I missed them. So building building data and like your hypothesis and then once you you always have to think like how confident am i in this like if you're not if you're not fully confident it might not be worth it to make this um turnover bet bluff that you think he will fold to um because it's too risky but sometimes things line up and you're confident enough in it um that you can you can really make you can make a wild exploiter to play and uh, that that's some of the probably sickest poker I play. I love that. And it's paying attention, like seeing a C-bet sizing. And the thing is about people is typically people are predictable. They're not, uh, your regular recreational player is not rolling dice to randomize their decisions. They're going to be very predictable. So just seeing a sizing in a pot that you're not in, just free information that's sitting out there, a player C-bets one half of the pot. The hand goes to showdown and he's got a marginal portion of his range. You can be fairly certain the next time they see bet half pot, they're probably going to have a marginal portion of their range. And you get more, you get, you get you more. You also draw an inference that if he bets full pot, he has a strong part of his range. Exactly. Like 75%. You can extrapolate a lot from there. Exactly. So just getting those little bits of data, little bits of information can tell you a ton, especially in weaker tournaments. Um, and if you're wondering, and live stuff too. I mean, even live tells stuff like that. Um, oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I made a big bluff in the World Series main event based on like a recreational player double checking his whole cards. Like a third diamond came on the turn, and he double checked, and I was a hundred percent confident it was sincere. You know, a lot of people when they have a flush there and they check it anyway, just dupe you or whatever. Oh, diamond check, but I have a flush. Right. Um, I was a hundred percent confident he was doing it earnest like he, he he was checking to see if he had a diamond and i check raised the turn big and misses the diamond doesn't come in the river and i overbet bluff all in and in the world series main event like you don't really want to be doing that <laughs> against rec players like necessarily but i was so confident in the fact that he didn't have a flush that uh, i knew this was gonna work and like all these little pieces of data like they deduce the range of the people you're playing against like they give you information and like Physical tells – I did an interview with Fedor Holtz about a month ago, and Fedor said something that I had never thought of. We talked about physical tells because he's a big 
physical tells guy. Like he studied them and thought about them a lot and human behavior. And in the super high rollers, a lot of the best players, um, they take the same amount of time for each decision so that there's no timing tells or anything like that. But he said that you can tell when people think like their face looks different when they're thinking versus when they're like running out the clock, waiting, waiting, right? And he mentioned like a prominent high stakes player that is fell into that exact category. And I had never thought of that. And I thought, wow, like that is extremely smart, an extremely smart physical tell. um, Just the tension people hold in their face. Yeah. Or even eye movement, stuff like that. When a guy's thinking it might look differently than when a guy's just knows what he's doing and is waiting to act. Yeah. I think physical tells are probably the most underrated aspect of live poker as far as like people don't put enough study time into thinking about human behavior like they should not to the uh, not to the general public though <laughs> the average civilian thinks we're like wizards you know like, <laughs> oh, you read some guys by like you know the perception out in the world right is right everything, yeah. everything is live tells you know yeah he blinked <laughs> twice and held his breath when he bet the river so. yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny how the the public's perception of what it actually is yeah, yeah i would say not a lot of people spend much time studying that i know there's been a couple courses and things like that i've never I've never actually seen any of them, but I, I know there's some stuff out there, but um, it's not something that uh, people spend a lot of time on. And it's human behavior and it's a high pressure situation. And when you, with high stakes, and when you add all those together, people go back to their default. Like it's really hard to act contrary in a spot where there's all this pressure. Like it's really hard to, you know, whatever the physical tell is like glare at somebody when you have the nuts, right? Like just as a basic human behavior. So tons of value thinking about live tells. Yeah. And, um, it's tough. I mean, when you think about solving tells or making plays off of them, it's tough to generalize and and say this tell applies to everybody, especially with things like breathing and shaking. Like some people breathe heavily when they have a big hand. Some people breathe heavily when they're bluffing or hands shaking, like the, what might be true for one player may not apply for another. So I try to be pretty specific player to player when I have a, when I'm looking for live tell. And it circles back to paying attention to everything that's happening at your table, every single hand, because like you mentioned before, you know, there are plenty of ways people can lose money. <laughs> like you can be very creative on the ways that you lose money playing poker and if you put everybody uh, that's a losing player into the same bucket and think that they're all going to make the same mistakes, you're just setting yourself up to get kicked in the nuts because yep. you really have to hone in on what people are doing wrong so you can exploit that specific thing. And I think most most pro players, even good pro players, would admit that they could pay more attention at the table. Nowadays, everybody's on their phone, they're checking sports or whatever, where um, – I'm sure most pros would admit, oh, yeah, if I paid more attention, I would make more money. And uh, that's always been something I'm kind of like not willing to budge on where I'm, I'm pretty vigilant about paying attention at all times. And I, I want to bring my best. And if I'm missing a little bit of edge because I was dicking around on my phone, that bothers me. That tilts me. I, I want to I be my best every time I play. So I, I try to make an effort on that. I would say that that shows in, you know, your results and your path in the poker world. It's time for Balanced Ranges, the game where you get to decide whether my Chasing Poker Greatness guest is bluffing or telling the truth. Here's how it works. 
I'm going to ask them 10 rapid fire questions and they can either A, tell the truth or B, try to run a bluff. If they fool you with a bluff, they get three points. If you think they're bluffing and they're really telling the truth, they get two points. And if you read them like a book, they get bupkis. 24 hours after each new episode releases, I'll be dropping Twitter polls where you get to cast your vote. Simply follow at Enhance Your Edge to join the fun. One more time, that's at Enhance Your Edge on Twitter. And now, Balanced Ranges. All right, Darren, you ready to rock? Yeah, let's do it. Number one, how many pull-ups can you do in a row? Um, 15. Invisibility or super strength? Visibility. Texting or talking? Talking. Do you snore? No. What's the fastest speed you've driven a car? 150. Favorite season? Fall. Dawn or dusk? Dawn. Favorite ice cream flavor? Mint chocolate chip. Number nine, your last Halloween costume? Mummy. The mummy? Yeah. All right. Final one, what type of milk do you put in your cereal? Almond milk. Almond milk for the win. All right. Thank you, sir. Imagine, so imagine there's a carbon copy of you. They're 20 years old, just getting into the game. If you could sit down and have a conversation with them, what wisdom would you share? That, that kid wouldn't listen to anything. So that, 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 well, let me start with that. Yeah. Um, the uh, so, year-old me didn't want to hear anything uh, from anybody. But um, if, if I would listen, I guess. I would say to, to play more in the – like I was, I've never been like a greedy player in the sense that like I've quit good games and I've never been a volume player where like some people are like, oh, I have this good game. Like I'm going to play every day, all day, 20-hour sessions. Like I was never like that where I played – pretty low volume and in retrospect now 13 years later the games are a lot tougher online is almost gone um i would tell myself play more play play more online um try to play higher faster uh play more if you're in these good cash games these good big cash games don't just book your win and pick up that's what i've always been like that in cash games where I've quit good games where I'm getting a little tired. I've played eight hours. I'm winning. Uh, I, I pick up. I'm not like, I know nowadays people, a lot of greedy and, and I, I say greedy, but um, efficient players, um, they just won't quit. They'll, they'll just play 30 hours if it's a good game, you know, and I, I never had that in me. So I guess I would tell myself to be a little greedier. And um, I think if I could have done that, maybe, maybe I'd, I'd be in a better financial position right now. Um, I, I would guess I would have made more money. Although for me, it did always bother me if my play started to decline in the session. Like that would tilt me to the point where I wouldn't be able to play. So, so like I know um, it's like quality versus quantity. You could play more if, if I played more at a ninety percent level. I would make more money. 
Um, but playing at that 90% level bothered me so much that I kind of couldn't do it. And that, that was always my issue with, uh, with playing a lot. Like I've always been kind of a low volume. Even now I play about 50 tournaments a year. When I played online, I played 3,000 or 4,000 tournaments in my whole career on PokerStars, which is like, we'll play that in a month. Um, so I, I've never been a high volume player. So I, I guess uh, I would tell myself to play more. So when you were spinning it up to 500K, like what, what did your daily slate look like, like in the glory days? Um, I played 100 rebuy, 50 rebuy, but I'd probably play five or six tournaments. <laughs> um, I, I was always like, I wasn't a multi-table guy. I would play two or three tournaments at a time, um, four maybe. Um, on a Sunday, I'd play a couple more. But um, if you were to look at my results, like Starscope or something, I'm like a high buy-in, high ROI, low volume. How do so, you, where does this amount, like sheer amount of focus come from that allows you to, you know, play two tournaments, be fully involved, 100% focus, or in the live setting, focus on every single hand? Is that a blessing? Do you work at that? I would say it's natural. I have like, whatever the opposite of like ADD is, I, I have that. Where, where I, I can sit and do, I have very long attention span. Like even as a child, I always have. So I guess it comes from that. Like I see it now with my, my daughter. Like it's crazy. She's two years old and she'll we'll sit down and play a, a game for an hour or like an hour and a half. And then like kids are running around crazy and she's like very focused. And it, it's, it's cool to see that. And I've always kind of had that where um, I have no problem sitting, doing something difficult for long periods of time. Um, and, I, and I enjoy it if it's to pay off at the end or there's, it doesn't have to be monetary, but. Um, some sort of uh, like reward at, at the end. Um, I get and I, I get very obsessed with things where like I don't like to dabble in like hobbies and whatnot. Like I, if I do something, I'm kind of like all in and I want to be the best at it, and I'm I'm gonna obsess about it nonstop until I'm very good at it. So I have that as well. That's a a blessing, <laughs> a very great blessing. Blessing of- and a curse, though. Like I, I can't I can't play video games. You know I can't. I can't dabble and play a video game. I'll like, you won't see me for six months. If I, if I actually get into it, you know, I can't like play a little bit. Yeah. Um, you're all in or not. Are you, are you all in on anything right now other than poker? I'm trying to get all in on golf, but um, it, it's not, it's not quite there yet where I, I was trying to book some bets where uh, I, I had never played golf before last year to kind of get really good in the year. And um, people didn't want to bet me. So but that didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite all in, but I'm getting there. Yeah, you, you've had too good of results in other areas of your life to uh, for people to book action against you. Yeah, that's kind of what happened in the negotiations. People were uh, concerned about things I've done in the past that I could probably do this. Not the worst thing. Not, not the yeah, worst thing. Yeah. It'd probably be worse if you just got tons of action piled up against you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I win. You guys don't think you can do this? Come on. Who man. am I? Why do they, yeah. why do they think this no about respect. me? Um, what's something people would be surprised to learn you're horrible at? Let's see. What am I Directions. I guess I can't, I can't get anywhere without GPS. I'm really bad directionally, both like driving. And if I walk, if I'm trying to get around like a shopping mall or something like I'll go in a store, walk out, go the wrong way and just never be seen again. I'm ex- I got lost. <laughs> I'm exactly lost the same. Once I got lost in high school once, and I ended up in. I live in Pennsylvania. I ended up in New York, uh, calling my parents from a gas station payphone. Like, <laughs> I was like, fifty miles away in a different state. I was just going the wrong way. Pick me up. Yeah, I don't know. Like I don't know what it is, but 
in any area, like in video games. I have a friend who we were at Commerce Casino and we were driving around LA and like if I get to an area that's even remotely unfamiliar, I'm done. Like I the world spins. I have no idea where I came from or which way is yeah. east or west. And he like knows the exact direct route back after like 20 minutes of driving. It's like a fucking superpower with no GPS. I'm like, who are you, man? It's amazing people that are good at it. Even my wife, like we were in my hometown where I grew up, Erie, Pennsylvania, and like driving around, like she'd been there two days and she's like, no, 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 turn here. I'm like, I grew up here. But, right? <laughs> she knew better than I did. It's amazing. I, I don't understand that. I don't have that. Um, but you have to like know your strengths and know your weaknesses, I guess. I thank God for GPS and phones and stuff or I'd be, I'd be dead. Oh yeah, me too. I remember the days before GPS and phones and it, it was not, not a good thing for me to be out on the roads. And I'm sure your wife is familiar with your, deficiency of directions she, she tells yeah. me all about my deficiencies <laughs> she brought her to ask what i'm not good at <laughs> uh, if you if you had a magic wand and could change one thing about poker what would you change it's tough I, I, initially i think like lower the luck aspect of it where like you get more of close to your equity but then again you want to i want to give the weaker players a chance to win i guess if i did that it would kind of kill the game so that would be um that would be a poor decision with my magic wand <laughs> um i guess somehow make i mean now it's easy i would make cash games public again of course bam uh no private games that's easy but also the like game selecting and um like bum hunting with with live cash games and online cash games i would make that disappear somehow where i don't like the cash game ecosystem where pros prey on weaker wrecks and they don't play against other pros and it's kind of predatory i don't like that aspect of poker and i love to get rid of that and and nowadays it's just getting even worse with these privatized games you think the privatized games make things worse uh in live live poker i would think they would make them better by shutting out the pros they didn't want in how does it make them worse well, you have to think about the guys who are running the games are kind of the worst of these of these pros. Where these are the guys who are willing to um, befriend and like swindle rec players into these games, and um, then they block out any pro they don't want, and any pro they bring in, they have their action. So it kind of just gives one or two people big control, big power, and um, they're really taking advantage of uh, of these rec players. And the guys who are willing to do this usually aren't good guys. So it kind of makes it worse. Where if it's a public game, at least it's fair. I mean, either way, these rec players are going to lose most of the time. I don't think they're necessarily losing more money in the private games. But um, it's at least it's fair to everybody if it's public. What's the selling point to like a rec player to go play a private game? Like better people, uh, um, better environment? Yeah, better environment. They get to pick where and when they play, which is nice. They have a guaranteed seat. It'll be, oh, show up at two, you have your seat. And you do play against the same group of guys, which I think is enjoyable for, for Rex in, in cash games. Even when I play live cash games, it's it, it's fu- it's more fun when you play against the same people kind of day in, day out. Same jokes, you're talking about hands you played a couple of days ago, that, that kind of thing. And the one, I guess, positive aspect of the private game is they really block out the nitty pro. Like you, the the Rex don't like playing with that guy, and he's not in the game. Right. Um, so right. that is that is one aspect where if you have pros in there, 
they're going to be good action players, which is more fun than playing against. They're probably going to lose more to those guys, but um, that's that's more fun than playing against the nitty pro who's waiting for a set to try to sack you. Right. Like it action's more fun in general. Uh, I would imagine, especially to like the recreational players, even if it's action that they don't want, <laughs> like even yeah. if it's action where they're taking the worst of it, even like, you know, I think about a player like Garrett, um, yeah, it's a good example. Going to give all the action in the world, right? But a lot of most of the time, it's not the action that you want. Um, he's fun yeah. for the game, but he's obviously going to be making great decisions, putting people in tough spots, and one of the biggest winners in any game he plays. And he's going to three bet you with suited connectors, three hundred big blinds deep. Like, do you want that? <laughs> and the answer, I guess, for rec players is yes. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a good example of like a a guy who um, is action can get in those games. And uh, does a good job um, entertaining the rec players. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him in with the bad guys of the privatized games. But uh, he's a good example of like an action player. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, like I, I've played against Garrett a bunch at Commerce in LA, and I, I've told the story on this podcast, I think. But there was one time where he threw at me every time I opened for about four hours in a row on my direct left at a full live game. <laughs> so it was like, just, it was really good for everybody else. Probably not so good for me and Garrett. Um, yeah. But yeah. Trying to send a message, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I doubled up twice. Like we were playing 2040 No Limit and I, I beat him specifically. I think I was up like 11K and mm-hmm. he was just like, no, you're not like, this is not happening. <laughs> and just like, even somebody opened one time and I was like, oh, I'm going to three bet them. Like, what's yeah, he going to do about that? He just flats. Like, he just flats yeah. on the button. I'm like, fuck this guy. Like, he's gonna, he just <laughs> wants to be involved against me. Not a good feeling when somebody wants to be involved against you every single hand. Um, if they know what they're doing, that's not uh, – it's a good player. That's not good, especially if they're on your left. I mean, I played with Garrett um, a couple weeks ago in L.A. at Live of the Bike. And, uh, yeah, he's – He's an example of a, a guy who can get in good games, is personable, gives a lot of action, but but also plays well and wins a lot of money. Yeah, and I think that's like the prototype of who you aspire to be as a high-stakes poker player. But I would tell you the guys running these private games are not like Garrett, I would say. Oh, yeah. Like you said. They're a little scummier and nittier and uh, probably not as good. Humans act in their own self-interest right just the fact that they're locking the game out and will only invite pros that they have action of i think that just that in and of itself speaks to who they are as human beings yep definitely very greedy a couple more questions and we'll get you out of here if you could erect a billboard that every poker player had to drive past on the way to the casino before they played cards every day what would it say don't complain to them (laughs) <laughs> there's just too much complaining and bitching about stuff that I think it, it's just negative energy wasted where if these people would um, spend, spend that energy trying to get better or focus, um, they would be a lot better than texting their friends about how terrible someone plays or how bad they run or blah, blah, blah. Like just, just show up and do your job. hundred thousand percent there. Like I've never seen a top pro complain consistently about how bad they run and how bad players are like they just take care of their own business and think positively like you know yeah 100 percent. yeah the, the latter bothers me even 
complaining about how bad people are is, is really the one that bothers me the most. Cause, cause most time that's like weaker pros or mediocre pros. Like you have to realize mediocre pro you wouldn't exist if this guy you're complaining about wasn't here. So, so you're literally complaining about a guy that's giving you a livelihood. Like you want to go play against a bunch of top pros. Like you wouldn't be complaining then, but you'd be getting smashed. And uh, like, do you want to do that? Like, why are you complaining that this guy plays poorly just because he made you lose one hand? Like it, it's very short sighted and uh, people don't get the big picture where um, you're complaining about a guy that you need to be there. <laughs> like, it, it, it's ridiculous. to me. And even sometimes it can be deceptive because sometimes people complain about people that own them and they never take a second to think, why did this happen? Right. Like where it's not an obvious recreational player and they play a big pot and they're like, ah, oh, this guy plays so bad. Like, look what he did, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, yeah, he fucking owned your face, man. Like you're <laughs> not looking at the spot, right? Put a world-class player instead of the rec player. You'd be like, oh wow, that was sick hand. Like, <laughs> yeah, sick, well. Because sick it's hand. a rec player, you don't right. think he's capable. And uh, that's something that can happen. Like rec players get lucky every once in a while and take a really good line. I mean, that's going to happen just by probability, you know? Exactly. And when you discount it, you like, I'm a big fan of learning from experiences. So when you have an experience, learn from it and say, did I do something wrong? What information were they working with? What did they see me do? Like what led to this event that caused this player to own me? Like, did I mess up? That's always my first thought is, did I do something wrong? And if I did something wrong, how do I not do that in the future? Yeah. And it's a knee jerk reaction. Oh, stupid fish. Like whatever. It got me. Like I I get it. But then as long as you make it, as long as a, you don't say that out loud, B you like make it to the next step of analyzing your play and what happened, um, then you're okay. But just some people don't make it past that for a lot of people don't make it past that first knee jerk. Like fuck this guy. No, it's like, I would say most people don't. And that's probably, uh, you know, that most people don't, and that's probably indicative of where they're going to end up in their poker career over the long term. What's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? Then it doesn't have to be poker related. Project, but just um, raising my daughter, being with my daughter right now is kind of like consuming everything. Like seeing when I'm home, just seeing her learn things and um, spending time with her is really uh, near and dear to my heart, obviously. Um, it's nice kind of traveling and then I get excited to come home and, and be with the family. Like that's something that um having children like really, really makes evident. And like, I can't even this summer, like when I play the world series, I, I, I was there, I did a two week stint and then like a three week stint. And that, that was almost too much for me to, to be away where back in my younger days, I might stay out there the whole time, stay two months, but now like I can't be away from her that long. So just being able to see her and, and like watch I compared to AI almost watching her learn things, watching a, a human child learn things is amazing how they mimic things and uh, they watch and they learn. I'm trying to teach her chess right now, which is pretty hilarious. Um, but anything like that with, uh, with her is, is my main projects. I guess. There's no more valuable project than our children, right? Um, of course. Making sure we, we do a good job as fathers and mothers to raise them in a good way. Yeah. And it's something that's really tough to understand. I think without having kids yourself, like before I had kids, I didn't really get it. And uh, now, now that she's not that she's grown up, but now that she's like a real person and she's almost three. It's like, I'm, I'm starting to see it. And 
not to put any extra pressure or anything on you, but learning about like the psychology, the Elliot Rose stuff, uh, all the mental game aspect of life, these things that happen in the two to three years old age tend to stick with us as human beings. Like there's two versions of us, like the baby version of us that is becomes irrationally fear of things that we learned at that age. And then the adult version don't always mesh well. So, you know, you got, uh, all these little biases that you're creating and these fears that you're teaching your, your kid that just stay with them for the rest of their, their life. No, I'm interested to see like how that develops as she gets older. And and I'm kind of like implanting these biases on her and, and stuff from poker where like, I'm always skeptical of people and, uh, like she's going to be in like, elementary school and think she's getting scammed <laughs> like she's gonna, I, i'm interested to see how these things play out because i know i'm gonna end up giving her some of these biases oh for sure you you can't help it right you just uh as long as you, you know, I see the worst in people and i don't give people credit for things it kind of comes from being in the poker community you know it can be i think there there are on the flip side you know there's a negativity bias in play where we kind of kind of Obviously, you know, the story that you told earlier is one massive example of just not a good person in the poker community. But on the flip side, you know, they're really great guys that. Yeah, I met some of my best friends through poker and there's very good people out there. It's just a matter of uh, weeding through the, the rest yeah. of it. And uh, probably something that can only be done through time. You, you learn your lessons and take your lumps. At least I did. I, I did not make great decisions um, okay. early on in my poker career as far as like the people, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, final question. Loved having you on the show today, man. Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the interwebs? Uh, I have Twitter. Use my name on Twitter and uh, Old Money D on Instagram. I don't post that much, but uh, if I go deep in a tournament or something, I'll probably let people know. Um, I will be at Borgata tomorrow. So I'll be playing <laughs> WPT Borgata um, this weekend. So yeah, nice. find, me, find me there. Awesome, man. I appreciate your time and energy. Loved having this talk and uh, grateful to share it with the, with the Chasing Poker Greatness audience. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please take a moment to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. And once again, I wanted to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're on the lookout for a new poker platform where the games are safe and secure and the action's amazing, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod to get your code and jump into the games. You must have a code to play as well as be 21 years of age or older. One final time, that's EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Poker Greatness.